Be good. Daniel chapter 2. This is a very lengthy chapter. There are 49 verses in it, and we're going to go one by one. So we'll be here for, if I spend, you know, one minute on each verse, it's an hour. But we won't do that. But let me read to you some of these passages and share with you. Really, there are two points that I'd like us to take home with us this morning. And that is, number one, the way that God answers prayer and how efficacious and effective and meaningful prayer is. And secondly, how wonderful God is by his grace in that he is sovereign and he is Lord. So everything that, out, that flows out from this chapter has to do with God's answering of prayer and his control of all things. Now, we've been looking last week at Daniel chapter one. This week, I'd like us to take a look at chapter two. And so look at verse one. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Now, just very briefly, uh, this book, the book of Daniel, is filled with so much detail about what would transpire over the course of history that would be future from Daniel's perspective that oftentimes the critics have tried to find fault in the book of Daniel wherever it could be found. Here is one of those places. We're not going to look at every one of those places, but here is one. In verse 1, it says, in the second year of his reign, but you'll notice that in the first chapter of uh, Daniel, we're told that Daniel and his companions had been taken into captivity over three years. And what is interesting, and so they've said that this is something of a contradiction uh, in the scripture, that Daniel wasn't taken until the third year, and here it's the second year, and he's going to be of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and he's going to be on hand to interpret as well as to tell the king the dream. But in the ancient records of the Babylonians, what was interesting is that when a king came to power, when his year would be complete, and usually the kings were inaugurated as such, say in September, from September to September would be the first year. But unfortunately, oftentimes when kings died, they didn't die on schedule. So they never died necessarily in September. They may have died in April or in May. And when a king had died before the completion of the year in which he was reigning, the Babylonians still considered that his reign. And so for Nebuchadnezzar, when he comes on the throne of, of the empire, his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had already died. But it was midstream of his reign. So from the Babylonian perspective, his time was or that year of his reign was not attributed to Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but to his father. But during his father's death, while Nebuchadnezzar was reigning, Daniel was taken captive. That was his first year. But it was not yet the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. It was still the year of his father, even though his father had died and Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne. So by the time that it was Nebuchadnezzar's first year, it was Daniel's second year in captivity. And by the time it was Nebuchadnezzar's third, third year, second year, 
It was Daniel's third year of captivity. So in chapter two, what we're reading is Daniel now is here for his third year. But Nebuchadnezzar is reigning during his second year because his first year was also part of the year when his father had died. Now, I hope I haven't complicated things, made things worse. Everything was so easy before you said anything. I understand that. My students used to always say that to me. You know, Mr. D just made it totally complicated. Well, then forget anything I said. But the point is that here Daniel now has completed his training. But what's interesting is now Dan, Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. Notice the plural. And so he had a series of dreams that were unsettling for him. Must have been unsettling because he's calling in his astrologers, his sorcerers, his wise men. Uh, the Hebrew text says the Chaldeans. All of these uh, individuals, all of these classes of individuals that were considered counselors to Nebuchadnezzar. And while he had many dreams that were disturbing him, there was one particular dream that stood out among all the other dreams. Now, Daniel is still a young man. He may be 18 years old at this time. He's only gone through the preliminary training period of these three years. And now he could stand before the king if he was so summoned. But he's a young man. And the counselors that Nebuchadnezzar had were older individuals. So what we find is that Daniel and his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are not called before the king along with the other wise men with whom they have been trained. And so the king now wants them to come before him. He says these dreams have utterly troubled him. They've disturbed him. And when we look at what the particular dream is that is on Nebuchadnezzar's mind, we can understand why it was troubling to him. Because it tells us in that dream that Nebuchadnezzar's time will one day come to an end and his empire will crumble and it will fall. And while he does not know the meaning of the dream as yet, he knows there's something not quite right about it or good for him. So in verse 4, then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. And this is interesting too, because from this portion of Daniel's record until the conclusion of chapter 7, it's all not in Hebrew any longer, but in Aramaic. Aramaic was the common language of this period of time in the ancient world. Just as in the first centuries or so, Greek was the common language and thus the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, were written in Greek. It was the lingua franca, the common language of the then known world. But in this period of time, some 600 years before the time of Yeshua, the common language of the Babylonians was Aramaic. And as the Jewish people are taken into captivity under the leadership of the Babylonians, we will see the development of the Talmud written in Aramaic. We'll see other documents written by the rabbis as they forge a new way of worshiping God without the temple and now in the synagogue during this period of time. But the common language of the Babylonians and those whom they conquered was now Aramaic. 
And from this portion through chapter seven, the visions Daniel will receive and the dreams he will interpret and all of those kinds of things will focus primarily on the nations of the world and their relationship to Israel. And thus he writes in Aramaic because the focus is not Israel per se, but on the nations. But then in chapter eight through the end of the book of Daniel, he'll pick it back up with Hebrew. And the focus of the remaining portion of scripture will be God's purposes and plans for the nation of Israel. So the text is telling us that Daniel now begins to write as he is speaking or as these individuals are speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, O king, live forever. Now keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world at this time. And he's a great ruler. He's a great organizer and he has built up this empire and it has become a place of renown. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who had championed the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. His kingdom was a beautiful kingdom from an external evaluation of it. It was a wonderful kingdom in terms of its establishments, its order and its power. And now when these individuals come before the king, they know before whom they stand. And so they present themselves to him by saying, O king, live forever. They say, tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it for you. Nebuchadnezzar replies, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces, your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Well, you have to wonder why Nebuchadnezzar would be so strict with his counselors, with his soothsayers, with those who had or claimed to have that kind of personal relationship with the gods of Babylon who could provide them with the understanding and the interpretation of the dream itself. But Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be fooled. He wants to be sure that these individuals truly are able to interpret the dream. So he wants them not only to interpret the dream, but also to tell them the dream. After all, if their association with their gods was so great, and if these gods would tell them the meaning of the dream, certainly the gods could tell them the dream itself for which they would supply the soothsayers with the interpretation thereof. But the soothsayers, the sorcerers, the magicians, and all of those who have come before the king are not able to tell Nebuchadnezzar, the dream. Verse 7, they say, once more they reply, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, was a ruthless man. P perhaps in that period of time, <clears throat> two of the most ruthless empires were the Assyrians, whom Nebuchadnezzar just defeated, and the Babylonians. We see this in the book of Daniel to think that when one is to be judged, 
He would be thrown into a fiery furnace. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to decree. I think it's chapter four or so, three or four. What a horrendous way to die. And they heat up the oven so hot that when the servants open the doors for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to be thrown in, the heat from the oven itself kills those servants of Nebuchadnezzar. A ruthless man. So when he said, if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will all be cut down, your families will be decimated, and your homes will be reduced to rubble. He meant what he said. And the counselors to Nebuchadnezzar knew he meant what they said. So they plead once more, tell us the dream. And then in verse 8, the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time. Just trying to buy some time. Because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. So in verse 10, the astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. Now they've gotten very bold because they were responding to the king. They're answering him back. They're not simply saying, as you wish it, you know, your lordship. But rather, they're now arguing with him. And they're saying, listen, what you are asking is unreasonable to be asked of anyone, let alone your sorcerers, your soothsayers, your magicians, enchanters, your counselors. There's no one on all the earth that can interpret this dream or tell you the meaning of the dream. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing. Now they've gotten even one step further. The first step was, there's no one on earth that can do this. By, and actually, they're right about that. There is no one on earth that can do it. But God will reveal it to whom he so chooses, and in this case, Daniel. But then they go one step further. They said, and you know, no king has ever even asked such a thing. You stand apart from all other rulers in this thing. They've never asked any magician or enchanter or astrologer what the king. The third thing they say is what the king asked is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. In verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Now, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel, and all others are involved in the judgment. In Nebuchadnezzar's anger, he's going to destroy all of his counselors over their inability to tell and interpret the dream. And so in verse 12, this made the king so angry. So in verse 13, the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Ariah, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. 
Now remember, this is an 18-year-old or so who's in a foreign country, who is no longer with his family, although he's got these three companions and perhaps others with him. And with wisdom and tact, he asks Uriah, he says, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? The fact that Arioch would even talk with Daniel and responds to him shows us, reveals to us, just how respected Daniel had become during this three-year period. And so Arioch then explains the harsh decree, this matter, to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Daniel must have attained a tremendous amount of respectability because not only does he speak to Arioch, but he gains audience with the king himself. Now, to be sure, the king is in great need of someone who will interpret and tell him the dream. And so when Arioch perhaps comes before the king, he says, there's one individual that would like to talk with you. He's probably saying, okay, you know, what, is he, what do I have to lose? And Daniel is given audience to speak before him. Verse 17. And the king gives Daniel some time. Because in verse 17, we're told, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So I am struck, aren't you, that the first thing Daniel does is to go back to his companions and to ask them to join him in prayer for the mercies of God. First of all, this reveals the great humility of Daniel. Daniel didn't just go off by himself and say, I need to pray about this. Daniel knew that he needed his companions alongside of him. And he knew that he needed them to be praying with him and for him as much as he needed to pray for himself. In other words, Daniel realized that though perhaps he sensed God's hand upon himself, he also knew that in some sense that wasn't enough in this circumstance, as it were. Maybe that's not the quite, quite the right way to put it. It wasn't enough. But from Daniel's point of view, these men with him were in this together, and he wanted their companionship. He wanted their support. He wanted their involvement with him when he went to prayer. And I think that's a great message for us of what the body of believers is meant to be. We are to be ones that come together. We come together for a variety of things, to share our gifts, to minister to one another, to encourage one another, to share in ministry to the world around us with one another, to encounter the challenges and difficulties we face with one another, that we would not be alone but that we would be with each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as companions on our journey, and the ones that God has put alongside of each one of us, that we might do the will of God that he has for us. Daniel is exhibiting this sense of body life 
as Ray Steadman called it years ago, I think it was back in the 70s or so, as I remember, I think he even published a book called Body Life. And so Daniel here is working with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as they go before the Lord in prayer. And notice what they pray for. He urged that they would join him in pleading for the mercy of the God of heaven, that he would make known this mystery, concerning this mystery, and so that as a result, they would not die. So during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Notice we're still dealing with prayer, though at night, Daniel did not have this vision or the dream of Nebuchadnezzar revealed to him in a dream, but rather in a vision. Now, it's very difficult sometimes to distinguish all of these different mechanisms by which God makes things known. But dreams and visions are distinct. And perhaps the distinction is between one being unconscious and one being conscious. In our dream states, we're unconscious. But in a vision state, I think, we don't know for sure, but I think Daniel is conscious. And though it's at night, it's while he's praying, while he's reflecting, while he's meditating, not while he's sleeping, but rather while he is interacting and communing with God, that the Lord then makes known to him the dream and the interpretation thereof. And the first thing Daniel does is to give praise to God. If it was me, I would have ran to the king and said, I've got it, you know, hold the swords, hold the guillotine. I've got the dream. But no, Daniel's response was first and foremost to go before God and say, I praise you, O Lord. You know, one of the little acronyms that is helpful in praying is the acronym ACTS. So that our prayers would begin with adoration or praise, include confession, see, confession, recognizing our need and God's great mercy toward us for it. And then thanksgiving, giving God uh, thanks for what he has done, expressing our gratitude. And then the S for supplication that we then ask God uh, for the needs that we have. Just an easy way to go through our prayer time. To adore the Lord, to confess our sin, to thank the Lord, and then to bring before him our requests. Daniel is like this. His first response is to give him praise. And notice what his praise consists of. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Of course, when he says praise to the name of God, he means praise for the character and the being of who God is. Praise to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for he is the true God. He is the living God. He's the one, and these are the two points he focuses on. He's the one who is all wise and therefore can reveal the dream. He is all powerful, and therefore he's the one that can give the dream to whomever he so gives and make it known. His power is seen in that he changes times and seasons, and he sets up kings and deposes them. His power is seen in that he's in control of all things. Tomorrow night, we have another debate that I hope you'll focus in on between uh, President Obama and uh, Governor Romney. We ought to be focusing our attention on what's going on because in another couple of weeks, 
will be our presidential election. And while we'll get a chance to have our voice heard, ultimately it is God who sets up kings and deposes them. God who sets up presidents and deposes them. It is God who puts people in leadership and deposes them. So while we do our part, ultimately God is the one who is at work fulfilling His will, His desire, and His plans. That's because He is all-powerful to see that His will is accomplished, not only in our own lives, but in the world around us. But not only does He give Him praise for His power, but He gives Him praise for His wisdom. In verse 21, He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. All praise, honor, and glory goes to God. And none of it does Daniel attribute to himself or his own ability. How contrary this is to Nebuchadnezzar, who will speak about his great might and his power in Daniel chapter 4. And then God will bring judgment upon him to reveal that he has only what power God himself gives him. And that is true for every individual, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but for all of us in whatever place we are at. Now look at verse 24. Then Daniel goes to Uriah, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men. He said, do not execute them. Take me to the king. I will interpret his dream. And Uriah took Daniel to the king. He said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And the king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And look at Daniel's reply. No wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown the king what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. What's so neat about Daniel is he's thinking of the other wise men as well. And he's saying, when they said to you, O king, no wise man, no counselor could do what you have asked. He's telling the king they were right. No one could have told you the dream or had interpreted it for you. Unless the God of heaven revealed it. And so the only reason I stand before you is not because I am greater than these men. But only because God in his grace has made known to me what you saw. And he's made known to me what it means. So Daniel replies, as you were lying there, O king, verse 29, your mind turned to things to come. I think this is very true for political leaders. They oftentimes are looking what will happen in the future. When kings and presidents and rulers vie for power, what do they tell us? If you vote for me, this is what I will do for you. 
And as things begin to unfold, if those things do not come to pass, they tell you, look to the future. I'm still working on it. It's going to come to pass. When this happens or this vote is taken, we'll be able to do such and such. Looking to the future. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar is thinking very realistically. He knows that he was able to take down the king of Assyria. Will there be a king who will one day take him down? All empires have come and gone. There is no empire that exists today that ever existed in the past before. There may be remnants of these empires. There may be descendants of these empires. But Rome does not exist. The Mongolian Empire does not exist. Take any of the Chinese empires. They do not exist. Or any of the shoguns of Japan. Take any of the kingdoms of Europe. They do not exist as major powers that are ruling like they had in the past. And we make a serious mistake if we think the United States of America will never see a dawning of the day and a darkening of the light. We are not promised to endure forever. There will come a time, perhaps, when our own nation will not be what it has been or is currently. So all rulers think what might transpire in days to come. And what is my contribution to this nation? And what legacy will I leave? And will it be a better place or a weaker nation? Pastors think this way about the places they serve as well. Because no pastor continues to serve, no congregational leader continues to serve in their congregation forever. There always comes a time when one will step down or be forced to. The question is, what kind of legacy is left? And what kind of ministry remains? And where does that ministry go from here? I think of this. I pray about these things. I consider the actions of my own life and how that may impact on what God may do through or around me to bring blessing or chastisement or discipline or great grace. Anyone in a place of leadership thinks about what might come. And so when Nebuchadnezzar was laying on his bed, Daniel tells us, he was thinking about what will happen in the days to come. And so he says in verse 29, O king, you turned your mind to things to come and the revealer of mysteries. God himself showed Nebuchadnezzar what is going to happen in the latter days. That's a key phrase. That denotes a very broad period of time, but it always includes the coming of the Messianic age. And so what he's told is this. You looked, verse 31, and before you there stood a large statue. The impression is, the point is that Nebuchadnezzar was right there at the foot of the statue. Not looking at it from a distance, but right before him, he sees this huge statue before him, Daniel tells us. He says it is enormous. It emitted light because he tells us it was dazzling. 
And it was awesome in appearance. It impressed him greatly. And it drew his attention directly. And that's why when he had many dreams, this particular dream is what was riveted on his heart and on his mind. The statue he saw was made, or the head of the statue he saw, was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze or copper or brass, and its legs were of iron, and its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And then while you looked at this statue, as you were staring upon it, impressed with the light that it emitted, the enormity of its size, then, he says, you saw a rock that was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken to pieces. At the same time, it became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel then tells the king the dream, the meaning of it. Look at verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings. Some people have disputed how it would be that Daniel would refer to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings. But if you look at Ezekiel chapter 28, you'll see that Ezekiel also refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings. For he was in his day the ruler of rulers of that era. And even today, we still think about Nebuchadnezzar and his might and his rulership and his reign. He is that head of gold. He doesn't just say your kingdom is the head of gold, but he says you, O king, are the king of kings. And while he is represented, he stands in symbolism for the kingdom of Babylon. He says, the king of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he's placed mankind, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. And wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Then in verse 39, he says, after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. One sentence to describe the second kingdom which he doesn't name here, but in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 11, he will name them as the same symmetry of uh, vision is revealed, but with different forms. And we'll see that as we go through. The kingdom that arises after Nebuchadnezzar is the Medo-Persian Empire. And it will follow on the heels of the Babylonians and will destroy the Babylonian Empire and will then reign over the nations of the earth. He then says in verse 39, Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze or brass or copper, will rule over the whole earth. Just a little phrase denoting this third kingdom, which later we will see named by, by Daniel as the kingdom of Greece. And then he says in verse 40, Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And here, 
Daniel and what will reveal, though he never names this empire by name, is certainly a reference to Rome. So here are four kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and Rome. Now in verse 41, just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong, partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture, will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Most information is reserved for this last kingdom. That's the focus, and that's what appears to have attracted Nebuchadnezzar's attention. What's interesting about the imagery is if you look at the metals, the metals are most valuable at the top, gold, and as it descends, they become less valuable. Silver, bronze, copper, and then iron, and then clay. And while the metals at top are most valuable, they are also most heavy. Gold is heavier than silver. Silver is heavier than bronze. Bronze is heavier than iron. Iron, of course, is heavier than clay. In other words, what seems to be imaged is that the nations of the world, though they grow, they, become, they are more valuable and qualitatively more beautiful at the top and heavier at the top, they are stronger, except for the clay, to the bottom. Silver is stronger than gold. Bronze is stronger than silver and iron is stronger than them all. The empires get stronger, but their quality gets weaker. And this is interesting because this flies in the face of modern thought that would tell us the world is getting better and better. In reality, the world is getting worse and worse, though the empires are getting stronger and stronger. Think about that. The, the empire of Babylon was a most glorious empire, but Rome was not glorious. Rome was strong and brutal and powerful. Think of our own day. Our own day, we are the most powerful nation in the world. But who in the world would think that we are more moral than we were when we were established, let alone thousands of years before. Are we really a more moral nation than Rome was? We use our scientific abilities to do the most outlandish things. Think of how our medical abilities have grown and think of how all the aborted infants have died. How many millions of unborn children have been killed by means of our medical technological advancements. We have gotten wiser, or at least smarter, but not wiser. We've gotten stronger and more powerful, but not more spiritual, and not more sensitive, and not more caring or more compassionate. We've really disintegrated over time, rather than have really grown and become what we ought to have become over the amount of time we've had to become it. But that's what... Nebuchadnezzar sees his empire is gold but Rome is iron and clay
I wonder what metals God would use to characterize our world today. What would we be like? And because the metals in Nebuchadnezzar's vision are heavier, the statue is top-heavy. And because it is top-heavy, it doesn't take a whole lot to make it fall. Iron does not mix well with clay. And when those clay toes are demolished, the entire edifice must fall. That is to say, the kingdoms of the world, from our perspective, may seem rather undaunting. But from God's perspective, ultimately, we stand on clay. If we're not standing on that kingdom that is formed out of a rock, that is made without hands, that will ultimately crush all the nations of the world, and will become a nation and empire that will stand forever. That's what Nebuchadnezzar sees. He sees a rock that is chiseled out without hands. That is to say, this one is divine. That does not come through human ingenuity or human ability. This one comes by virtue of himself. For he is the divine king of all kings and the divine Lord of all lords. It is not hard to know who the rock is because scripture over and over tells us that he is the chief cornerstone. He is the one that when ones fall upon him are broken to pieces or when that rock falls upon Others, it will crush them. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, he will quote from Isaiah 28 and from Isaiah chapter 8. And if you look at Psalm 118, we don't have time to look there, but you will see he is that capstone that finishes the temple spoken of in Psalm 118. The rock is the one who said on this rock, I will build my body of believers and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, let alone the nations of the world. And so that rock is the Messiah of Israel. That when he comes to reign, will destroy all the kingdoms that have preceded his. And he will reign from one end of the earth to the other. And so know, O King, that it is to him alone that we are to worship and we are to praise. Daniel will say, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is certain and the interpretation is trustworthy. So move was Nebuchadnezzar that, look at this, he falls down before Daniel, paid him honor, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this 
mystery. And the king placed Daniel in a high position. And moreover, at Daniel's request, there's that again, he sees himself as part of a body of people. He doesn't forget Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they are set as administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained as counselor in the royal court to the king himself. God blessed Daniel and his companions, to be sure. But he also blessed Nebuchadnezzar by revealing the dream, giving him the dream, and then telling him the mystery, the meaning of it. And the meaning of it is simply that God is sovereign. The reason he could tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream is because God gave him the dream. And the reason why he could tell Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream is because God will bring every one of those aspects of the dream to reality. You and I have already seen Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. You and I have already seen Alexander the Great and the succeeding generals that would inherit his command, uh, his empire. You and I have already seen the Medo-Persian Empire. You and I have already seen Rome. We now await the coming of Messiah's kingdom and his appearance in all of his glory. Let's pray.